What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. We are extraordinarily powerful as individuals, and it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. When we choose peace, when we choose justice, when we choose love and kindness for not just ourselves, but every living being, when we connect to every living being, including Mother Earth, our intuition opens, that connection makes us feel less alone, and we step into who we really are and who we were born to be. And I have high hopes for this planet and for all of us on it, that we can make change and we can make this a paradise. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hello, veggie lover. You are in for an incredible journey on this episode. I just finished talking to Ellie Lax, and I'm telling you, I'm sweating. My heart was racing. I'm filled with so much beautiful, positive energy. We talk about so many amazing, fascinating things. And I'll tell you that we delved pretty deep into the spirituality and some things that may be a bit uncomfortable if you're not at that place in your life, if you uh, are turned off by anything that gets into the spirituality and to any of those topics, maybe this is not episode for you. But I will tell you that Ellie Lacks is a very beautiful and special woman who is doing amazing work in the world. And in this episode, we talk about her vegan journey. We talk about the gentle barn and the animal sanctuary. We talk about cow hug therapy. We talk about animal communication and whether animals have souls. So we get into all of those really fascinating, interesting topics. Let me tell you more about her, though. So Ellie Lacks is the founder of the Gentle Barn Foundation, a national organization that rescues and rehabilitates unwanted animals and heals people with the same stories of abuse and neglect. Ellie is a powerful speaker, celebrated animal welfare advocate, humane educator, animal communicator, and the author of My Gentle Barn, Creating a Sanctuary Where Animals Heal and Children Learn to Hope. Ellie founded The Gentle Barn in 1999. She invented her own gentle healing method that allows old, sick, injured, and terrified animals to fully recover using a mixture of Western medicine, holistic healing modalities, holding therapy, and lots of love. Ellie is the creator of Cal Hug Therapy and has hosted hundreds of thousands of people who have come to The Gentle Barn seeking hope. 
And like I said, we talk about all of the things that she's doing and, and we really get into some topics that are just very fascinating and lovely, including her own self-care techniques that she uses to stay healthy and to help preserve her body so that she can continue to do this work for longer because believe me, she is an incredibly passionate and determined woman. This woman can move mountains, I I assure you. And she's doing lots of good in the world. So it's a delicious episode. I hope that you devour it with enthusiasm and that you love it. Thank you for being here week after week. If this resonates with you, if you feel like more people need to hear this type of message, share it. Don't be afraid to share it with your friends and family. And new listeners, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you for taking a chance and trying out a new podcaster and a new um, kind of platform. I really appreciate you. Let us now welcome the beautiful Ellie Lax. Ellie Lax, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. What a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Well, I'm just so excited to get to know you a little bit more. I've read through some of your book and watched some videos about you online. So you have a very fascinating story, but let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your vegan journey. Well, um, I think like most of us, I was born an animal lover and I was fortunate enough to grow up on the East Coast. And so right near my house, houses were lakes and woods. And I got to interact not just with my dog um, and neighborhood animals, but I got to interact with ducks and turtles and watch tadpoles turn to frogs. And I fell madly in love with animals and nature. And uh, thankfully, I never lost that love. At seven years old, it struck me that I saw nature and animals in a different way than the people around me. Um, it was so obvious to me that animals were our greatest teachers, healers, and best friends. And that's what they were to me. The people around me kind of saw them as things we own, things we wear, things we can eat, things we throw away when we don't want them anymore. And it really perplexed me. It was an isolating feeling because I felt so different than everyone else. But at the same time, it fueled me to do something about it. At that time, at seven years old, I still ate what I was told and hadn't made that connection yet to loving animals and knowing who was on my plate. At 11 years old, there was a chicken in my school and she was in the auditorium in a cat carrier and she was trembling violently. And there were hundreds of kids running around, laughing, screaming, playing. And I was the only one that noticed she was even there. And so I crossed the auditorium, pulled her out of the cat carrier and into my arms and smoothed down her feathers and talked to her and told her it was okay, that I was here, she wasn't alone, that I loved her. And eventually she stopped trembling and kind of fell asleep in my arms. And moments later, the principal came in and said, don't pet the chicken, she's got to go to the slaughterhouse. And she pulled her out of my arms and disappeared out the door with her. And my little 11-year-old brain was scrambling to figure out what in the world she was talking about. And it was in that moment that I was hit by a ton of bricks and realized, oh my God, that's chicken and rice. So I went home that day and I declared to my family that I was never going to eat animals again. And my mom said, oh, that's nice, dear. Eat your soup. And I said, well, didn't you hear me? I'm not going to eat animals. And she said, well, that's not an animal. It's just soup. And I said, yeah, it's chicken soup. I'm not going to eat it. And then, of course, my parents panicked and thought I was going to die and wouldn't grow and would be weakly and sickly. Well, I am here to tell you at 55 years old, I made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, so I, I went vegetarian at 11 years old. And um, I really didn't 
care if I was eating nothing at all or just pasta or potato chips or French fries. I was absolutely not going to eat an animal again. And I didn't. But I still didn't know the truth about the dairy and egg industry. And it wasn't until I actually started The Gentle Barn 24 years ago. I had just opened it. And there was a group of volunteers that came in. And one of them asked me if I was vegan. And I'm embarrassed to say my answer was, no, I'm American. Yeah. (laughs) So we had a good laugh. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, do you eat animals? And I very proudly told him that I stopped eating animals at 11. And he said, yeah, but what about dairy and eggs? And I said, oh, well, that doesn't hurt anybody. And he told me what the truth in the dairy and egg industry and opened my eyes. And I went vegan on the spot. And that was 24 years ago and haven't looked back. And the exciting thing is at the time I went vegetarian and then vegan only for animals. Um, And I was young and healthy. So of course I took my health for granted. But now several decades later, getting older, needing more energy, needing to wake up very early in the morning and be ready to go and stay up sometimes very late at night, the health benefits are a real uh, treasure now. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a win, win, win. It's a gift that keeps on giving for so many around us and for the animals and for the planet. It makes sense, though, that a child wouldn't think about that, right? I mean, we don't want children to be thinking about their mortality and like, oh, I don't want to get heart disease. Most children are not focused on that. But as a child, you were able to see that connection. You had that empathy for animals. But isn't it interesting that it does even then as children, because All children are empathetic towards animals. They have this natural affinity towards animals. They love it. They want to cuddle and play with animals. Why do you think it takes so long to make the connection that we're also eating these animals that we love? Well, I think that our culture hides it, to be honest with you. I mean, you're right. As kids, we're watching cartoons and movies about animals. We're reading books full of animals. That's all we're drawn to. And yet at the same time, we're being fed things called beef, not cow, and pork, not pigs. And so there's a dissonance there. There's a disconnect there that until we learn who we're eating, it's easy to not understand. How long did it take for your family to kind of calm down and realize that you weren't going to disintegrate before their eyes? Yeah, I mean, throughout my whole childhood, it was the stance of like, well, we're not going to make anything special for you. Okay, you don't have to. And so I stuck to my guns. But it's funny because as an adult, my parents left me alone because obviously I wasn't dead. Um, And and now um, my mom and my siblings are vegan. And my dad is uh, kind of heading in that direction. So it's interesting. They fought me so hard and now they're on board. Yes, I love it. And I love hearing that ripple effect. And it's all about being that role model and just living your life joyfully. And other people notice that. And when they're ready, they start taking steps towards that. So that's beautiful. Well, you mentioned the gentle barn. Tell me, what is the gentle barn and why did you found it? So the gentle barn was my dream since I was seven years old. Uh, Noticing that disconnect between the way that I saw animals and the people around me couldn't see them the way that I did. At seven, I would tell anybody that would listen, I would say, when I grow up, I'm going to have a big place full of animals and show the world how beautiful they are. And I didn't know exactly how to do that. um, But I went to bed every single night and I would drift off to sleep imagining myself already there. And I I would know what the gentle barn would look like, what it would feel like, smell like sound like. It was so real in my mind that it was literally a place that I would visit every single evening as I drifted off to sleep. 
And at school, instead of listening to the lectures, I would draw what the gentle barn would look like till the desk and my notebooks and my arms were full of pictures of animals. So it was something that was very real to me. I just didn't know how to create it actually real in the real world. And I was busy procrastinating trying to figure it out when, as a young adult living in a little house with a half acre backyard in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, I was doing an errand one day and saw a petting zoo I'd never seen before. And my windows were open because it was a beautiful Los Angeles day. And the smell and stench, I should say, from that place kind of wafted into my windows. And I saw that it was full of people and it smelled bizarre. And I just couldn't help but be very nosy and pulled over and went in to see what was going on. And uh, within a few minutes, um, I realized this was not a good place. Um, the goats and sheep had toenails that were several feet long, which deformed their legs and made it almost impossible for them to walk. There were sick animals with runny noses walking around. There were dead animals in cages. They were beating the ponies to keep going round and round in circles, carrying children. But the most disturbing thing that I experienced that day was watching the over, there must have been a crowd of over 100 people there. And they were all smiling and holding hands and skipping around and posing their children next to these half-dead animals. And there it was again, this disconnect where the people around me could not see the suffering in front of them. And it made me literally sick to my stomach. So I had to get out of there. And I was running for the door and blocking the exit was a very old goat that looked like she was about to keel over any second. And she looked me in the eyes. She stopped me in my tracks and she asked me for help. And so I said, yes, I will help you. And I went to find the owner and said, hey, can I have that goat? And she said, no. And I said, well, can I buy her? Name your price. And she said, leave me alone. And I said, well, I'm going to stay here till you, till you say yes. And I stayed there for 12 days. And on, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you have a will, woman. You <laughs> came to this earth with a will. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so then what happened at the end of 12 days? So on the 13th day, she came and found me and she said, lady, take the goat and get the heck out of here. So I brought Mary home to my little half acre backyard and I called a mobile vet to come out and remove her tumors and trim her nails and teach me how to massage her deformed legs so she could walk again. And a few months later, she was walking around as happy as can be. And it was the greatest feeling I had ever had in my life. In that moment, I was like, this is who I was born to be. This is who I am. And I have to do it again. So meanwhile, I've been calling authorities to see if they can help that place because I had seen such horrible things that day. And they all said the same thing. They all said, we know about it. We all have files on that place. Unfortunately, she's connected politically and there's nothing we can do. And they advised me to just walk away. And walking away is not in my nature. So I said, well, if they can't do anything, I have to do more. And so I went back to the petting zoo and I found the owner who probably was not happy to see me again. <laughs> and I said, look, I know that you have other animals that are suffering. No questions asked. I'll take them off your hands. And she kind of rolled her eyes and said, fine, wait right here. And she went in the back and she started dragging animals out of the back. Broken bones, pneumonia, scared to death, dying. And I brought them all home to my little half acre backyard and got the mobile vet to come back out and help me fix them. And a few months later, I woke up in the morning, looked out to my little picture window to a backyard that was now full of animals. And I said, holy cow, I just started my dream. And that was 24 years ago. 
Oh my goodness. What a journey. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm just thinking about that, how that happened, because you're right. I think sometimes we plan for something and the hows get in the way. Like how, like the first thing I think of, especially because I have a lot of money scarcity in my life is like, how am I going to pay for all this? Because I'm just thinking that the vet bills and everything, you know, where's going to be the space? How logistically am I going to do this? But the universe was like, it's time. You're doing it. You're not even going to think about how it's just going to happen. <laughs> well, and you know, it's really funny because um, a few years later, um, Jay, a co-founder of The Gentle Barn, came as a volunteer and ended up getting on the board of directors and helping me in the office and helping move the animals. And he helped expand us from that little half acre backyard with a handful of animals to a now thriving and national organization. Um, and him and I teach a course uh, to help people around the world start their own sanctuaries. And it's interesting because in the course, we're talking about fundraising, we're talking about planning and zoning and what properties you have to have and what buildings you have to have and all of the house. But what's interesting in our story is that had I got caught in the house, it would have never happened. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's interesting how things happen. Like, it's almost like you have to be pushed into it and you'll figure out the how, <laughs> you know? But if you spend all the time worrying about the how, sometimes you block yourself because it's too scary, you know? Yeah. It's too scary. Absolutely. That's and incredible. in that day, all I knew was I was taking home those animals and helping them. That's all I knew. The how was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, and once I had helped them, then... I was using a trust fund that I had for my parents' divorce. I was using my first husband's paychecks, which is why he is now my first husband, because he was out of there. <laughs> He's like, I don't want any part of this. Um, but the how, when, when we have a dream and we can feel the feelings of having it now, don't, don't worry about the how. Worry about what is it going to feel like. Feel the joy. Feel the magic. Feel the peace. Feel the excitement. Know what you want to do and know why you want to do it and focus on that, the how finds us. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent believe it. That's how things have worked out in my life too. Well, you know, it's, it takes work running an animal sanctuary. So let's, let's talk about the difficult parts first, and then we'll talk about some of the really great stories. So what's the hardest part of running an animal sanctuary? Do you ever take time off? Do you ever have a day off? And how do you make time for self-care? Okay, I love that question. There are two hardest parts to running the gentle barn because as a child, I knew that I wanted to be surrounded by these magical animals and heal them. But as we grew, I wanted to go national to get in front of as many people as we possibly could so that people could open their hearts to the intelligence, affection, and magic of animals. And with that expansion, I needed to hire a lot of people to help me. And so we have an army of volunteers and we have 50 staff who are extraordinary. But managing all of those personalities and their comings and goings, that's harder than I thought it was going to be. I love people and I'm so grateful for the people that help me on a daily basis. But managing it all is something that I really had to learn. And, and, and it was hard. The other um, thing that's the hardest um, will sound obvious to most people is when we can't save an animal. Um, there are three reasons why animals come into the gentle barn. 
One is to be restored to health and wellness and then live the lives that all animals can live. And when those animals live 13, 15, 20 years, which is way beyond their life expectancy, and then we have to say goodbye, at least they had this beautiful, rich, wonderful life and we're grateful for all the memories and we feel like we've done something good. The other reason the animals come to the gentle barn is to heal quickly and then pay it forward by healing people. So we have incredible animal ambassadors that we get to partner with that really dole out hope and healing to everyone that comes here. And it's a real honor to work beside them. The third reason that animals come to the gentle barn is to pass away. You know, sometimes at the animal shelters, the stockyards, the auctions, the slaughterhouses, there are animals that are too ill to be restored. But instead of dying at the cold hands of those places, they come home to the gentle barn to pass away in our arms. Then that's always really, really hard for me because when we can take an animal and restore them to health and wellness, their life is a living apology for what they've been through and for what all of their kind is going through. But when we bring an animal home and we can't make it right and we can't give them that living apology, it's awful. It's really, really awful. And I do suffer from compassion fatigue. Um, compassion fatigue is a real thing. As a matter of fact, in our course that Jay and I teach about how to open a sanctuary, there's a whole class dedicated to compassion fatigue because if you're not aware of what it is and you're not knowing how to heal through it, there are many good people that start sanctuaries and have these amazing intentions and then they come up against compassion fatigue and they crumble and they quit. And so teaching about compassion fatigue gives people an awareness of how to survive it and keep going. Um, Now, it's kind of like the whole physical health thing that we were talking about before, where when I was younger, going vegetarian and then vegan, I didn't care about my own health. It was just about the animals. And now that I'm older, it's like, oh, wow, I'm really enjoying the health benefits. It's the same thing with self-care. For decades, you know, I had no day off. I had no lunch break. It's just work, 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 work. And I loved it because I was living my dream finally. And I was on purpose and I felt more alive than I ever had before. So I loved it. But now I'm 55 years old and I don't have the stamina that I used to before. You know, I'm feeling my age a little bit. And so self-care has become essential, whereas before I didn't care about it. So not, not, and, and not just because of the compassion fatigue, but like physically, I have to nurture myself. And it's funny, you know, in our society, we don't talk much about self-care. I mean, we're beginning to. But predominantly, when people talk about self-care, um, there's kind of like a selfish vibe that goes along with it. Like, oh, that's so selfish. That's so self-indulgent. And actually, it's the exact opposite. I can't help anyone if I'm not whole. If I get sick, then my work stops. So self-care is vitally important, not just for our mental well-being and emotional well-being, but for our physical well-being, because the, the more well we are, the stronger we are, the more energy we have, the more mentally clear we are, the more wonderful things we can do for others. Um, and I remember early on wanting the gentle barn to be national and wanting to get in front of like everyone in the world and show them how beautiful these animals are. And I remember thinking at the time, okay, well, if I want to go national, then I need to heal myself emotionally so that I have nothing in my way. I have to get rid of everything that might hinder me. And so I remember thinking like my, not just self-care, but like 
therapy, energy healing, meditation, yoga, eating a healthy vegan whole foods diet, all of those things helped me get myself out of my way so that I could be completely focused, clear, and healthy. Because the healthier I am, the more work I can do. Oh my goodness, Ellie. This message is resonating with me so perfectly right now at this time in my life because this is really what I want people to hear. It's not selfish to take care of your physical body, of your mind, and of your spirit. Because when we can preserve our physical body, it gives us more time to live our purpose. It gives us more time to follow our life path, the plan that we set out for ourselves before we came to this earth. And when we are able to connect to that spirit, which I know you're very familiar with, and we're going to talk with about more later, it's not just what we can do, but when we're vibrating at that level that we are transmitting joy to others, it's literally an energy. It's a service just being aligned. It's a service feeling that joy because it's literally just radiating from us. We don't even have to do it. We just have to stand there and be joyful and feel centered and feel grounded. And so, you know, these things that you're talking about, you know, eating a whole food plant-based diet, meditating, making sure that you're resting, you know, doing your physical activity, doing all those things are really important to maintain the mind, body, and spirit so that we can serve. For those people that are oriented to service and to giving to others, we have to do that in order to do it longer. I love it. Yes. And also there's a concept that I've been working on that I actually write about in my second book called Cowhug Therapy, which I'm writing as we speak. I had this thought one day that how can I try to create a world where animals are no longer victims when I have kind of victim residue inside of me from my childhood. And so it's, it's this concept that I'm working with that we have to become what we want to see in the world, right? Yeah. And so it's not just about gentleness, kindness, peace, and community. It's also about, I need to shed my own victim story and I need to become empowered and not see myself as a victim at all in any way, because then, and only then, can I create a space where animals are no longer victims? It's that journey of healing, of yeah. doing that deep healing so that we can come forth in that way to help others heal. Yeah, I love it. That's beautiful. And it makes so much sense. Well, speaking of your next book, I didn't know you're writing a next book, but that's actually my next question. Mm -hmm. What is Cow Hug Therapy? Oh my God. Cow Hug Therapy is the best thing in the entire world. <laughs> Um, so it started with my very first cow. Her name was Buddha. And she was extraordinary in every single solitary way. But one of the things that she did is um, very early on, I first, I just got her. She was so sweet and so friendly. And I would go out to the barnyard just before bedtime to kiss everybody, to check everybody, to make sure everybody's okay so that I could, you know, go to sleep myself and not worry. And so I would go out on these nightly checks. And the last thing I did was go to Buddha because she usually was sleeping kind of out in the yard under the stars. So I would check on everybody in the barn and then I would walk back towards the house. And she was usually the last one there by the gate. And um, one day I walked past her and I wanted to like just pat her on the head and tell her that I love her. And something made me stop. It's almost like she was saying, no, 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 wait, don't rush. Like spend a minute with me. And I had had 
a grueling day. I mean, these are in the very, very early years where I was trying to keep my first husband happy, which was impossible. I was trying to figure out how to raise money. Um, and so something just kind of made me stop and sit down next to her and kind of lean my back against her shoulder just to take a minute. And the most extraordinary thing happened. She wrapped her neck around me and held me. And I immediately burst into tears. And it was, I don't know, I think one of the greatest hugs I'd ever had in my life. And I just shed the day and shed the stress and shed the worries and let go of my to-do list. And my mind became clear. And I just was in that present moment with her, in that embrace, feeling completely loved and nurtured in a way that I hadn't had previously. And it became a nightly ritual where I had to have that hug in order to go to sleep. And then it was so transformative and healing for me that I was like, well, I've got to share this with every single person that comes to the gentle barn. So when we were open to the public, every single guest got to hug Buddha. When we had tours for kids who were underprivileged, underserved and at risk, they got to hug Buddha. And with each hug, I was blown away at her power, her healing power. We would get these teenagers from drug and alcohol rehab centers or foster agencies or probation camps, um, teenagers that were going through some really, really hard times. And they would come into the barnyard and they wanted to keep their crisp white t-shirts clean. They wanted to keep their new sneakers clean. They wanted to like be cool in front of their peers. So, you know, they weren't going to hug a cow. Um, But I would very gently kind of tell them her story and model it for them. And I would go find like the leader of their group and kind of like ask him for his help. And then he would hug her and then everyone else would fall in line. But when these tough, hardened, defensive, coldened by life teenagers would put their faces down on Buddha's shoulders, their faces would literally melt into kids again. And it was the most beautiful, magical transformation I've ever seen. And I just, I couldn't get enough. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating, and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, 
and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. And so we've been doing cow hug therapy for 24 years now because of Buddha. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we were noticing once we reopened that it wasn't just people through agencies that were suffering but we're all suffering in one way or another. We are all globally affected by what we just went through. And so we started rolling out individual cow hug therapy sessions for anyone that was struggling with depression, anxiety, loneliness, uh, grief, um, or even just anyone that needed a good hug because they're stressed out. And so it's an hour long session um, and people can come out, book an hour to themselves, and they could hug everyone. They can hear their stories of resilience, or they could just hug whoever they're drawn to and just stay with them for the entire hour. And there's many reasons why I think cow hug therapy is transformative. Um, obviously, the unconditional love, the non judgmental attitude, and just the warm body. I mean, my God, we went through three years where we couldn't touch anyone else. So, I mean, to hug a giant cow is incredible. There's one main reason why I think cow hug therapy is so incredible. And I write about this in, in my new book coming out called Cow Hug Therapy. Um, when we're infants, we rest against our caregiver's chest. We can hear their heartbeat. We rise and fall with their breathing. And we feel tiny, vulnerable, humble, and open against a giant, massive, warm, loving frame. And as we grow, that feeling cannot be duplicated. You know, we could hold our cats and our dogs and hug our partners and our friends, but they're, we're kind of of equal size or larger. So it's not that feeling of vulnerability. And I think that hugging cows replicates and duplicates that feeling of being an infant because they're so massive and they're not doing it because we're training them or forcing them, or teaching them, or asking them to do it. They're doing it because cows are naturally nurturing. And they, they relay love and affection to each other. And when they trust us, they relay it to us as well. And so it's that same feeling where you can hear their heartbeat, rise and fall with their breathing, and match their breathing to ours. It releases oxytocin. It shuts down the brain and our giant to-do lists. It immerses us in present time. And all of a sudden, we're these tiny, tiny infants, open, vulnerable, humble, full of infinite possibilities against a giant, warm, loving frame. And it is absolutely life-changing. It sounds amazing. And what I thought of is just that feeling of being enveloped in love, you know? Yeah. And sometimes we crave that. And, and you're right. It's not easy to feel something bigger than you just like grab you and take care of and you feel like you're taken care of you know you feel like you can let go and just be like okay everything's going to be okay so I can imagine what that might feel like now can all cows give cow hugs or is there just certain cows that are more like huggers or how does it work <laughs> is there like a cow selection process say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Well, like all therapists, human and animal alike, um, there's a certain ingredient, if you will, that goes into a good therapist, right? All therapists have gone through hell themselves and have lost themselves and had to go through the healing process themselves of remembering who they are, why they've come, finding themselves again, digging themselves out of the hole that they've built and be restored to health and wellness. And then and only then can they pay it forward. So it's the same thing for cows. They have to have been through trauma to be able to heal trauma. But the other thing is that they have to be completely out of their trauma. So, you know, if you go into a dairy, it's funny because once we started talking about cow hug therapy, we have dairies that call us and say, oh, you know, we want to make our cows do cow hug therapy while they're in the dairy. And we explain to them, you can't have, you can't have a cow that you're tearing their babies away and you're disallowing them to be family and you're keeping them in fear and trauma constantly, they're in trauma themselves. They can't heal anyone else's trauma. In order for a cow to be perfect at cow hug therapy, they have to have a past of trauma, but have to have had healed and forgiven and trusted and loved again. And then they need to be happy. They need to be with their family. They need fresh water good food. They need soft bedding. They need people around them that are respecting them and trusting them. And then they can elect to be amazing cow hug therapists. Um, I also think that there's a maturity issue. Like, you know, we have a cow named John Lewis, who I actually raised in my house, and he's turning three in July. He's still a baby. He wants to play and bonk and run and have fun. And he's still trying to figure out the world. So I wouldn't ask him to do it. You know, they get to grow up, they get to become adults first. And then once they've kind of found themselves and they're more mature, then they choose to do it. Do you ask the animals for consent? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent. I always ask them if they want to do this work and how they feel about it. And you can tell not just in my ability to communicate with them, but you can also tell in their body language. I mean... Yeah. Um, the cows that want to do this work will walk over to a crowd of people and lay down among them, beckoning them to cuddle with them. And a cow that's not ready will obviously walk away and not be interested. Um, but yes, I, I asked them consent, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And the word that came to my mind was just safe. Like, you know, you imagine that the cows on the dairy, they don't feel safe. And it's kind of like trying to feel gratitude when you're in despair. You, yeah. you can't do both or like trying to pour from an empty cup. You can't do that when you're just trying to be safe and feel safe yourself and, and trying to get that stability yourself. So that makes a lot of sense what you've you've just said. Yeah. Well, let's talk about animal communication because I think it's fascinating and you have a, a whole life history with it. So first of all, obviously I know your answer is going to be it is, but is it possible to communicate with animals? How are you able to do this if you know? And have you learned techniques to strengthen that gift over time or is it just like a natural um, process? And maybe you can share with us uh, a, a story or two, of, a particularly powerful story or two about animal communication. Oh my God, I love these questions. Yes. Um, 
So first of all, yes, we can all communicate with animals. We don't know that we can, but we can when we remember our gifts. So if you look at the entire animal kingdom, they are all communicating telepathically. When you look at a herd of horses, it's not one that startles and runs and then everyone else follows. They seem to do it simultaneously. If you look at a school of fish, they move in the exact same direction simultaneously. They're not following a leader. They're all doing it at the exact same time. Animals talk to each other telepathically and it's totally normal. Our tribal ancestors communicated telepathically and that was normal. It's only in our very techno-savvy Western society where we have trained out of it. We have the same gifts because we're animals as well. And every single living being is equipped with intuition. We've lost it because from the time we're children, we're told to sit down, shut up, follow the rules, and listen to someone else. So we're virtually trained. First of all, we're disconnected from nature, right? Because most of us live in cities that are covered in concrete violence and noise, and we've disconnected from the natural life. Second of all, we're trained in school to listen to someone else and ignore our own instincts. So, you know, there's very subtle ways that we're kind of pulled away from it. Plus, most religions say that that's nonsense. It doesn't exist. And, you know, it's like the devil's work. So there's many reasons why we're trained out of our normal state of intuition. So I would say that it's not a matter of learning how to do it. It's a matter of remembering that we can. And we've all had these experiences where the phone rings and we know who it is before we even pick up. Or we're talking to someone and they're smiling and saying all the right things, but something inside of us feels uncomfortable. Um, or maybe we want to go down a certain road and something tells us not to. Those are all examples of intuition. And so animal communication is just a furthering of that intuition and a real trusting of ourselves when we get information. Um, for me, my journey started as a tiny child. Um, I literally remember being three years old and waddling out of the house barefoot and going up the hill to the woods and sitting under a tree. And the wild bunnies would come and sit around me and I'd talk to them and would hang out. They were my friends. Um, and at six years old, I have a very, very vivid memory of playing in my room with my dolls and all of a sudden getting a call, if you will, like, oh my God, someone needs me. And I put my dollies down and I walked through the house and out the front door and down the street and left at the lake and a right at the shore. And there underneath a very, very tall tree was a bird that had fallen out of her nest. And I was like, oh, here I am. Thanks for calling me. Um, I'm going to help you. And I brought her home and I made a little nest out of um, grass and mud. And I fed her until she was big enough to fly away and be wild again. Um, and I thought that was normal. I thought everybody did that. I was like, I went to school and I was like, don't wild animals call you? Like, don't you hear them? Um, and then unfortunately in high school, I got teased um, by people for my closeness and connection with the animals. And I think in my late teens, I wanted to be quote unquote normal. And so desperate for my peers approval, I kind of shut the door to my own intuition. And I just wanted to be normal, which first of all, there is no such thing as normal. And second of all, um, it led me down a very, very dark road, because I think that the minute we start denying who we are, it's not going to end well. So it led me to addiction. It led me to promiscuity. It led me to all kinds of horrible things that I was doing to try to fit in when I was denying who I was. Mm -hmm. And um, to make a long story short, um, in my early 20s, I 
was on the end of a long drug binge. Um, and I suddenly realized like, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Just kill yourself and get it over with. And I was trying to figure out like how I would kill myself and, you know, all the logistics and much to my surprise through that whole process, I realized that I wanted to live. And so I told myself, well, then get up, take a shower, eat a meal, move across town, enroll in school, and for God's sake, start owning who you are. And so that was the beginning of my reconnection to myself in trying to accept my connection with animals, my love of animals, my ability to talk to animals, and not feeling ashamed of who I am. And somewhere in the middle of that journey, I ran in, into two extraordinary women that really, really helped me. The first was a woman named Amanda Reister, who was an animal communicator. And she moved from Chicago to LA to spend three years with me to teach me how to do animal communication um, and really connected me to my own intuition. And, you know, I'd like to say she almost saved my life. Um, and, and, and she was there when my first cow Buddha passed away. And I don't think I would have survived that loss if it wasn't for Amanda, because she, she taught me that Buddha was still with me. And then she taught me how to continue communicating with Buddha so that that relationship could continue. And I don't really know how the rest of the world makes it through loss like that when you think they're dead or it's an ending. Um, but with the ability to communicate with animals and know that they're still right here, they just left their bodies, but they didn't leave us helps the grief so much. And I still talk to Buddha every single day and she's not in her body anymore. So that was Amanda. And then the second person that kind of saved my life was a woman named Joan Ranquit. And she has a school for animal communication and energy healing. And during the pandemic, we're friends. And during the pandemic, I had time on my hands and I was kind of shaky with my confidence because I had been shamed and teased so much for animal communication. And she said, why don't you just join my school and boost your confidence? And so I went through her two-year school and it really, really boosted my confidence uh, to the point where now I'm a professional animal communicator and I'm talking to animals all over the world for their people. And I love it. And I can't wait to see who I'm going to talk to next. I have a website, people come, and it's just the best thing in the whole wide world. Um, and it, for any listeners out there that kind of thought like, oh God, I wish I could do animal communication, check out joanrankwit.com because she can teach you also. And again, it's not teaching you. It's just helping you remember your own gifts. So how does it come through for you? Like, do you get words, images? Do you feel things in your body? How does that communication feel like for you? Yeah. So um, for me, it comes through in all my senses. I can smell things. Animals show me what things smell like. Um, I can see pictures. So I see pictures and videos where animals can show me a scene or a snapshot. Um, I can also hear their, 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 I can hear their voices and just write down their sentences. I can ask them questions. Um, but mostly it comes through kind of like my own thoughts. And I think that that's why intuition is confusing because it comes through like you're thinking it. So it's very easy when you're not trained to think, oh, I just thought that. Um, so basically I'll ask an animal a question and then I'll just sit in the stillness and the quiet and wait for the answer to come. And when the answer comes, I trust it. Oh, that is so amazing. That's so fascinating. Given that, 
do you have to deliberately open that communication or do things, because it sounds like when you were little, you were hearing all kinds of things. So I'm assuming if, especially as you become more sensitive, can it be overwhelming, especially when you're around animals that are suffering? How does that work? Are you able to kind of close yourself off to protect yourself or do things just kind of come or wake you up in the middle of the night? How does that work? It's kind of like walking through a mall. So you're walking through a mall and there's hundreds of people and they're all talking, but you don't necessarily hear every single solitary conversation. You're clued into that one person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that. Like when I'm in my barnyard, I'm not hearing all the animals talking to me at once because I am focused on either the person or the animal that I'm talking to and everyone else kind of fades in the background. But the way that the process works when I'm doing animal communication readings um, obviously, in my own barnyard, it could be in person, but for pe- for my clients, I do it virtually. And what I need is a picture of the animal looking into the camera so I can see their eyes. And then the only information I want is their name, age, gender, and who they live with. I don't want anything else. The thing about animal communication is if, if I go into a reading and I know a lot of information about that animal, then I'm stuck in my brain. And when something comes through, I think, oh, well, I already knew that. And so leads to a lot of doubt. Animal communication has nothing to do with your brain. Um, It can't. If you start using your brain, it's over. It's literally turning off your brain and receiving information. So I don't want to know anything beyond those questions because knowing nothing and then the animal shows me something, well, that's obviously the animal showing me something. And then I do like a meditation before the communication begins um, to kind of differentiate between what are my physical sensations And what are the animals? I have to be very, very keenly aware of what is my emotion and what is my physical sensation so that when I go into the reading, I know what's mine and what's theirs. And then once that is done, um, I, I ask the animal for permission to speak with them. And then I start by asking them what's their favorite things. Um, First of all, because I think the animal wants to talk, you know, a lot of animals aren't used to being heard in that way. So it's a fun question to answer. And just like, you know, you, you wouldn't walk up to a stranger and say, hi, my name is Ellie. Um, I heard you had cancer. They'd be like, get out of my face. <laughs> right. You kind of want to ease into it. So the way that I ease into it is I introduce myself and then I ask them if I can get to know them and what are their favorite things. And they show me their favorite things, their favorite foods, their favorite toys. They show me their relationship with other animals and their humans. And then once I feel like the communication's going and they're sharing and I have a good sense of who they are, then I can get to the good stuff of asking how they're doing physically or emotionally and ask, ask them questions on behalf of their, their people. Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. So fascinating. Well, do you have a story or two that you'd like to share with us about a particularly powerful communication you've had? Yes, I have a million stories. Um, I think the the first one that comes to mind um, was something just so unexpected where um, this woman gave me just my few questions with the picture of the animal. I knew nothing about the animal, nothing. And it was an animal that had passed away. She didn't tell me any information. And I went into the communication and she's showing me all her favorite memories and her favorite times and we're really jiving. And then I asked her if there was anything else that I could know about her because maybe she wants to tell me something that I haven't asked. And she told me that she was murdered. And so I said, oh my God, like, tell me more about that. And she showed me a boot stomping on her back. And she showed me trying to crawl on the floor and then going to the vet and being euthanized. And when I called her person, 
it was validated that she was murdered uh, by the person's ex-boyfriend. Um, and and I think the most profound thing about that reading, number one, is she told me information that like, holy crap, like I can't believe that's true. But second of all, the most profound thing about that reading was ha- what the message was from the cat. The cat kept telling the person over and over and over again, you have to forgive him. You have to forgive him. Him and I had a contract that you won't understand. Um, he's where he needs to be and you're not going to understand it. You just have to forgive him and let him go. And it was really, really sad because this person was working at a veterinary clinic and doing rescue. And when that tragedy happened, she, she quit her job and she stopped doing rescue because she was, she was so full of guilt. Like if she couldn't protect her own cat, what business did she have of working with anyone else? And I worked with her several times. Um, I think we worked like maybe four or five times together. I did energy healing. We did more communication with the cat. And I did tapping on her, which is a way to release trauma. And the cat kept coming through saying, you have to forgive him. You have to understand that there's other things at play. It wasn't your fault. And in the last reading, the cat said, and don't worry, because I'm going to come back to you. And we're going to have like this fairy tale love affair, just me and you to make up for what you went through. And sure enough, a few months later, um, the cat came back to her and now they're having this, you know, wonderful love affair. But it, it was, it was incredible to hear that animal who was so brutally murdered say that there's other things in the universe that are at play and we have to forgive. Yeah. I'm speechless. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. But, you know, um, I, I've really gotten a lot into this spirituality and, and learning about these things and learning about soul contracts and some of the agreements that we make before we come back to live our life plan a certain way. And that's so fascinating that that cat was able to verbalize that. I mean, that's just like so amazing. I just, wow, that's, I don't even know what to say, but my next question is very obvious. Do animals have souls? Oh my God, of course. So I believe that we're all the same. We just come in different form. Um, So, you know, you could be a person, you could be a dog, you could be an inchworm, you could be a bird. There's a million different forms we could choose, but the soul in each of us is the same. Yeah. Why do you think it is? I want to hear from your perspective, given the work you do and, and your whole life experience. Why don't more people feel that or believe that? Even with the spiritual people, nobody's ever talking about animals. 
<laughs> like everybody's, you know, of course we're all human. So we're focused on ourselves, which is normal. Right. But I just feel like that whole conversation about animals and all the billions of animals and all the animal suffering, nobody's talking about the animals. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a sad reflection of our society. Um, you know, it's easier to eat animals when we think they don't have souls. It's easier to harm or dump an animal when you think they're just an inanimate object. Um, I think it has to do with giving ourselves license to do whatever the heck we want for convenience and not having that uh, responsibility for other creatures. I also think that it helps us, you know, cut down forests and pollute the oceans and, you know, all the things that we're doing. Um, if we think that we're the supreme being and animals don't really count. Um, and, and I too have like, there was a animal community, uh, there was, um, sorry, a medium that I started following and, um, I really enjoyed his work until he started talking about like, oh, well, this isn't about animals. This is just about people. Like animals don't reincarnate and animals don't have. So I'm like, goodbye. <laughs> you just lost yeah. me. Um, yeah. You just lost me. Um, you know, and I think unfortunately, especially in America, but also worldwide, um, we are so incredibly egocentric to think that we're the only ones with intelligence and we're the only ones with a soul. And we're the only ones that have spirituality. I was nonsense. Um, we're all the same. Um, and, and, you know, and if I, I always believe that my whole life, but animal communication proves it because I'm talking to these animals that are enlightened and have incredible things to say. And they have the same awareness that we do. Animals complain about being old. They reminisce about being young. They fall in love. They grieve. Um, they enjoy the simple things of life just like we do. They talk about their ice cream cones and they talk about their delicious, yummy foods and their favorite toys. And, uh, you know, people will call me, oh, my dog uh, is hidden under the kitchen table and won't come out. We don't know why. And I talk to the animal and they're like, well, yeah, my best friend just died. And then I talk to the people and they're like, oh, we didn't even think of that. Well, yeah, they grieve like we do. They fall in love like we do. They want to protect each other and nurture each other and raise their babies just like we do. There's literally no difference. That's just fascinating. All right, I'm just going to sneak this one in there. And I don't know if you have an answer for this or not, but it sounds like there's some evidence that animals are reincarnating into other animals, but can it? can they reincarnate into humans or can it go backwards? Can humans incarnate into animals? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I actually do. So in part of my healing journey, along with, you know, therapy and energy healing and meditation and all that stuff, I have done a lot of work in past lives, trying to understand who I am, where I'm at, what past lives have accumulated to get me here and what work I still have to do on myself so I could be as clean as possible. So I could do as much work, uh, the, the best work I can. And, um, and these past lives, it's so fascinating. Uh, have you done past life work at all? No. <laughs> it, it is so cool. It is so cool because, first of all, the things that come up are things that I could never have made up if my life depended on it. And second of all, it's not born out of suggestion. In other words, the past life regressor is not suggesting anything, taking me through anything. It's just literally, and each past life regression therapist like has different ways of doing it but it's basically you you know breathe and you do all this stuff and then you just basically like open a door and step through the door 
and then they ask you what you see. And I have been a bear in my past life. And I feel very connected to horses and wolves, maybe. I've never really, I mean, I love all animals, but it's not like I felt, oh, I was a bear once. I didn't have that thought. I didn't have that connection with bears at all. It came out of complete left field. But I literally remember in that past life regression, being a bear and walking with my flat feet on the ground and having a super nose and being able to smell miles away and swimming. And I, I remember it so vividly. Um, I also remember being a human male, um, multiple lifetimes, um, many different scenarios. I feel like I could talk for hours about this. Um, <laughs> maybe we should do another show one time just on past lives because I have so much to say about it. Um, but I mean, just based on that alone, we, 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 our soul never ends and it just comes in and out of form. And that's the same with every soul. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know I went a little off track, but I just have a lot of questions and curiosities. I always wonder if I was some sort of water creature at some point, because I have a strange, unexplained phobia to whales. So whale can't really eat me or anything, but I have a phobia to whales. So I don't know if I was some sort of water creature. Maybe I was a plankton or what are those little things that whales eat? The tiny thing. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? But that was a very short life. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. And you know, um, that's part of the work when people have unexplained trauma and phobias that they go into their past lives and it comes from a different lifetime. Absolutely. And yeah. talents too. Yeah. You know, you hear on the news, like a two-year-old boy sits down at a piano for the first time and plays like Mozart. That comes from a past life. And yes, humans totally. aren't only humans and dogs aren't only dogs. The soul in all of us is the same and we can come in and out of any form that we want based on what we're here to learn and how we're here to evolve. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, Ellie, what do you wish more people knew? I wish more people knew that we were all the same. We just look different. I wish more people knew that we can all talk to one another. We just have to remember how. I wish more people knew that um, animals are extraordinary and way more than just a slab of flesh on a plate. Um, I wish people knew how much power we have as an individual to change things. Um, I run into a lot of people that say, well, you know, me eating an animal or not eating an animal, what, what difference does that make? The problem is so huge. What difference does it make if little old me does or doesn't do something? And I wish more people knew how powerful we are as individuals, because when one person goes vegan, and I know that you know this, we save 200 animals a year, 1,100 gallons of water a day, an acre of trees a year, and reduce our own risk of Western disease by 90%. We are extraordinarily powerful as individuals, and it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. When we choose peace, when we choose justice, when we choose love and kindness for not just ourselves, but every living being, when we connect to every living being, including Mother Earth, our intuition opens that connection makes us feel less alone and we step into who we really are and who we were born to be. And I have high hopes for this planet and for all of us on it that we can make change and we can make this a paradise. Thank you. Thank you so much for that beautiful message. Oh, that was so, so beautiful. All right. 
shifting gears a little bit. I know you're a super busy woman, but do you have a morning routine? I do. I do actually. Um, so I wake up and the minute my eyes open, I list all the things I'm grateful for. I want to start my day in gratitude. So I'm grateful for my dogs. I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for my gentle barns. I'm grateful for all my animals. I'm grateful for my staff, my volunteers. The list goes on and on. And as I'm preparing to get into my shower, I finish up the gratitude list. And then in my shower, I have these <laughs> silly songs that I sing. Um, just kind of connecting to my angels and my guides and asking my angels and guides to help me in the day and be as smart as I can be and helpful and healing as I can be and loving and loved as I can be and just give me all the information, the power and the spirit that I need to make this day the best day ever. Um, and then after my shower I and get dressed, I feed my dogs and my bird and I go down and give my bottle to my calf, uh, John Lewis, who's now almost three years old, but he still gets a bottle. Um, and I take the dogs for the walk. And then once we're done with that, I settle down and I meditate. Um, and I, I don't, I'm very busy, um, but I don't care what's going on. I don't care how busy I am. I always, always, always make time to meditate. Um, it is a necessity for me. It's not negotiable. Um, and I remember like almost 30 years ago when I was learning to meditate, it felt like torture because my mind would not shut up and it literally felt like torture sitting still. Um, but it's like any muscle, right? Like going to the gym the first time, it's going to be really, really hard. You're not going to want to do it. It's going to hurt afterwards. But if you keep going back, it becomes a routine. Your muscles get used to it and it becomes easier. So meditation is just like a muscle. And when you develop it, it becomes something that you need like oxygen. And, um, and I do several different kinds of meditations. There's like a chakra energy healing meditation I do. Um, there's a quiet meditation I do to kind of learn how to control my thoughts and um, get some um, information there. But the meditation I love the most, I do all three of them, but the meditation I love the most is a meditation that I do every single day. And um, I only do it for four or five minutes. As a matter of fact, I set my alarm for four or five minutes because if I do it for 45 minutes, then the next day I'm going to say, oh, I don't have time for that. And it's going to become unsustainable. But if I only do it for five minutes, it's always sustainable. And I could always do it every single day. You could always carve out five minutes. And what it is, is visualizing the world that I want to create. So I close my eyes and I visualize soft, fertile earth underneath my bare feet. I visualize to the left of me gardens as far as the eye can see with every single solitary vegetable in it of every single shape, size, and color. And it's feeding humanity. And I feel so healthy and full of energy just looking at that beautiful, beautiful fruits and vegetables. And then to the right of me, I see orchards as far as the eye can see with every single fruit and nut hanging from the branches succulent and juicy and my mouth is watering because I just want to eat that delicious food. And as I keep walking past these orchards and gardens, I enter a forest with every single forest creature that you can imagine. And they're all welcoming me into that forest as part of them. And I'm, they're thriving and they're happy and they're living their life and they're undisturbed and I'm walking among them and I'm feeling the canopy of these ancient thousand year old trees above me. And I'm just feeling the vibration and energy of all those animals and all those trees safely existing on our planet. And as I walk through the jungle, I come out to the other side to a beach and I'm looking 
at the ocean clear and pristine. And I'm seeing the coral of every shape, color, and size. I'm seeing marine life thriving. And then the ground underneath me shakes. And this group of wild horses gallops past. And I'm waving to them and they're looking at us because we're neighbors and we're community members and they're allowed to live wild and free like we are. And people are holding hands and holding chickens and hugging cows and being kind to one another. And this incredible feeling comes over me of just this beautiful planet that is thriving and we're all connected and we're all protecting each other and we're all loving each other. And I start my day off that way because then for the rest of the day, Every conversation, every thought, and every experience is born out of that world that I'm trying so hard to create. That is so powerful. And you are helping to manifest that for us. That already exists. You're just bringing it down to earth. So thank you so much for the work that you do. That's just incredible. Where can listeners connect with you? How can they support The Gentle Barn? Where can they find your books? Tell us all the details. Oh, thank you. So um, maybe for an animal communication reading or to learn more about animal communication and the energy work that I do, people could go to ellielax.com to find out all about the gentle barn and the amazing work that we do to come visit or even come and have a cow hug therapy session. People can go to gentlebarn.org um, and people can follow the gentle barn on all social media platforms, including YouTube. Um, my book is sold wherever books are sold on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and they can even get a signed copy through the Gentle Barn website at gentlebarn.org. I love all the work that you're doing. I'm going to ask you one final question before you leave us. So give us your top three tips for people that would like to better connect with and help animals. What can they do starting now? Love that question. Number one, go vegan if you're not already. Uh, because if you're eating violence and suffering, it blocks the intuition. We can't be fully open when we're bogging our bodies and souls down with that yucky energy. So go vegan so you're nice and clean and connected to every living being. Number two, meditate every single solitary day because it'll open you up and it'll connect you to who you really are. And number three, either start asking your animals questions and trust the answers that come back or check out Joan Rankwit's School of Animal Communication to remember how to do it so that you can start talking to animals as well um, so you can be fully open and alive. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I wish upon you a very long, long life so that you can continue doing this work. So thank you for the self-care that you do because we need you around a long time. I appreciate you. I feel so much love for you and your work. Thank you for all the work that you're doing out there and all the love and compassion you're giving to animals and humans. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.